So this, uh, this morning, we start on a journey um, of, of working our way through the letter of, uh, of 1 Peter. Um, I, I'll confess to you, it, it, 1 Peter might be my favorite book in the Bible. It's definitely in, in Kenny's top three. Um, the first Bible verse I ever memorized as, as, a, as a teenager, as a Christian, uh, was 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. So 1 Peter has a, has a, a tender place in my heart, um, and, and I believe uh, by God's grace as we study it that we'll be made more like Jesus through it. Uh, as, we, as we work our way through 1 Peter, it's really impossible to understand the letter uh, without understanding this man right here. Uh, his life, in fact, is pivotal to the letter of 1 Peter, and his name is Nero. Uh, his full name is Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. That's a lot for your driver's license, amen? It's a big name. Uh, Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome. He was the king, if you will, of Rome. He was the fifth king who led over Rome. He became emperor around the age of 17 and was emperor for about 14 years. And his ascent to power, as he continued to get more power as he was emperor, is nothing short of shocking. Uh, he felt his first threat at the age of 17 was his mother. He felt that his mother was too eager to give him advice. And so he had his mother murdered. He had a stepbrother who was 14 years old. And Nero thought, 14, what if he gets older and wants to take the throne himself? And so he had his stepbrother murdered. He had an advisor by the name of Seneca, his closest friend, his closest advisor, who gave him nothing but good advice. And he realized that maybe Seneca would be a threat. And so he had Seneca murdered. Uh, actually, he gave them gave him the choice of murder or suicide, and Seneca chose suicide. Uh, he was married at first uh, to Pythagoras and decided he didn't want to be married to her and had her killed. He married a second time to Sabina, and one night in an argument, he kicked Sabina to death. Uh, his third marriage was to a man, and at their wedding, Nero chose to dress as the bride, and they were married for a brief time. Uh, after the murder of that third spouse, uh, Nero was walking through Rome and saw a young boy, we estimate probably around the age of 12, and his name was Sporus. And when he saw the 12-year-old Sporus in the market, he was immediately struck that Sporus looked like his wife, Pythagoras, who he had kicked to death. And so he took Sporus, had him castrated, dressed him as a woman, and married him at the age of 12. And for the remainder of his life, he was married to this young boy who always dressed as a woman and was addressed as the empress of Rome. This gives you a little insight into the mind of Nero. 
Uh, Now, Nero was also eager to see Rome as a city expanded. He had a a real desire, almost like Hitler had for Berlin. Berlin. Uh, He had an architectural dream of how he wanted Rome to be changed. And at the heart of that, he wanted to build, of course, for himself a palace. The problem was there was no building space available in Rome. So on the night of July 19th, 64 AD, the great fire of Rome took place. Uh, We know that it started somewhere around the Chariot Stadium on that night of July 19th. And the fire, as you might imagine, quickly spread, just as it did centuries later in London. The fire spread quickly, and overall, the fire burned for nine days. Uh, Nero was conveniently in his country house when this happened. Uh, He came back nine days later to Rome, which was now two-thirds destroyed. Two-thirds of the entire city was destroyed. Historians then and now agree that uh, Nero planned for the burning of Rome. He had his own capital city burned to the ground so that he could rebuild it for his own glory. Problem was, uh, the people of Rome weren't too happy about their city being burned. And so immediately, uh, all of of the eyes of Rome looked to Nero, and everyone was suspicious that Nero was the one who done it. And so Nero needed someone to blame the fire on. He he needed uh, a scapegoat. He needed someone to say, here's the group, here's the person that set the fire. And so as he thought, who could he blame the fire on? He he was wise enough and cunning enough to know he needed to pick a group of people who were already disliked in the culture. And the group he instantly found was a small new group. It was a Jewish sect. They were a bit odd. Some referred to them as the way. Uh, Some of them referred to as little Christ, which, by the way, is a translation of the word Christian. Uh, They were an odd group because they they worshipped this man who was a carpenter who was killed by the Roman government, and they believed he came back to life. They were an odd lot because they only worshipped one God, and everyone in Rome knew there were hundreds of gods to worship. They were an odd lot because, as we just read in 1 Peter chapter 4, they didn't get drunk, and they didn't turn up for orgies, and they they weren't uh, involved in debauchery, and so they they were just odd. The Jews didn't like them because they were a Jewish sect. Uh, The the Romans didn't like them because they were suspicious because they wouldn't do all the things Romans did. And so Nero thought, that's the group that I'll blame the fire on. So it's exactly what he did. And as a result, uh, the great persecution of believers started under the leadership of Nero. They were an easy lot to, uh, to blame. In fact, uh, the Jews and the Romans agreed on nothing except that it was good to kill Christians. The only thing that brought Jews and Romans together was the killing of Christians. And you've already had an insight into uh, the depravity of Nero's mind. And so this was expanded as he thought of ways to kill Christians. He would feed Christians to the lions for sport. Uh, Christy and Kayla and maybe some of you have 
been to the Colosseum there at Rome, and you can still see where the animals were kept and where they would literally come up from underground, just as this picture shows. This is not an exaggeration. This is what the Colosseum, uh, to some extent, still looks like, but certainly looked like at that time. And Christians were literally eaten by lions. Another way that Nero determined that Christians could be killed was he would take animal skins and he would wrap the animal skins around Christians and then let loose dogs and the dogs would hunt the Christians and capture them and kill them and eat them. Uh, Lastly, uh, one of his more uh, ingenious ways he thought to kill Christians was that he would take Christians and dip them in pitch, a type of tar. He would then impale them on stakes set them on fire, and he would use them to light his gardens in the evening. And as he would have uh, people come and visit his gardens, the gardens were lit literally by the burning of believers. Two men that you already know uh, were killed under the leadership of Nero. That is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Paul died in Rome under the leadership of Nero. Uh, He was beheaded. And the Apostle Peter was martyred under the leadership of Nero. The Apostle Peter was crucified upside down on a cross. Uh, An amazing time. And persecution then began to spread across not just Rome and not just of what we now know of Italy, but across Asia Minor. And it moved like a wildfire, the persecution of believers. By the way, just a little footnote here. Um, We just finished the book of Philippians, yeah? And if you remember Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says he was imprisoned in Rome by, do you remember whose special guard were watching over him? Do you remember? The Praetorium, the, the emperor's special guards, Nero's special guards were watching over Paul. Do you remember what he said in Philippians 1? He said, because of my faithfulness to the gospel here in prison, all of the guards, all of the soldiers heard the gospel. That should get you much more excited. Think about that, how good the Lord is. Here's Nero, who's who's really, uh, I mean, he would be right up there with Hitler as we think of wickedness and depravity, and yet this This man, Paul, in prison is faithfully preaching the gospel and all of Nero's army are hearing about Jesus Christ. You can't stop the gospel. You can't can't stop the gospel. And as he's thinking of ways to kill Christians, his entire army is hearing about Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. Uh, This is the setting then in which one Peter is written. And it's critical to know that. You see this a lot here? These are the men and women that the letter is written to. Men and women who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is how quickly the gospel spread, but also martyrdom. Uh, it's estimated by the year 325, by the time you're getting uh, to, to about the, the rule of Constantine, uh, by 325, this small group of odd people uh, now number around 7 million. In the history, we're going to come back to this later, in the history of Christianity, it is the fastest Christianity has ever grown. Ever. To 
go from the year 64 to a handful, we think there were about 2,000 Christians. In the year 64, there were 2,000 Christians. By the year 325, there are 7 million. Christianity has never grown that fast. In fact, the time Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome, the growth of Christianity radically slowed. It's continued to grow, but never at that pace. And we're going to revisit that because what we're going to see is there's something about persecution that, that just fires the flame of the spread of the gospel. By the year 325, there were about 7 million Christians and about 2 million Along that journey, from 64 to 325, it grew to 7 million, but they lost 2 million uh, to men like Nero. All right, so let's keep that in in our mind, and now we're going to delve into uh, uh, just kind of an overview of uh, of the book of uh, of 1 Peter. So uh, if you don't still have your Bible open, uh, reopen it to 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter. Uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1. But by the way, um, as you're turning, just, just something amazing. You can see where Nero, uh, one of the reasons he disliked, the people disliked Christians is because Christians wouldn't participate in the wickedness of the culture. We just read that in chapter 4, right? He said Christians were not going to orgies, drunkenness, idolatry, and, and he says because of that, we just read in 1 Peter 4, they abuse you. It's an odd thing. The people in Rome abused believers because believers wouldn't participate. But here's something else. See, again, this makes the Bible come to life. In chapter 2, we just read, as we're reading it out loud, uh, twice Paul says, uh, Peter says this in chapter 2, honor the emperor and submit to the emperor. Get your head around that. This guy I just introduced you to, Nero, in chapter 2, we just read, Peter says... Honor Nero and submit to Nero. I, I believe if I was a Christian then and somebody read that, I'd raise my hand and go, can you read that bit again? Because I think I misheard what you just said. He said, honor Nero. How in the world? Well, stick around. We're going to learn those things. Um, here's some overview, and um, you might want to jot some of these things down if you desire. could be helpful. These are just going to be a series of questions, and, uh, and we'll just provide answers. Uh, author, who wrote 1 Peter? Who wrote 1 Peter? So 1 Peter, chapter 1, is, uh, is what you have open, and, uh, and we're literally just going to read uh, one verse, verse 1. And verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the promises of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All right? So uh, he tells us there, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So uh, when we look at who writes these letters, uh, we look first at what we call internal evidence. In other words, what does the letter say? The letter says, clearly, it is from Peter. Uh, Not only that, but it gives uh, more internal evidence. There are several references that you're going to find in 1 Peter that will will be reminiscent of Acts, the book of Acts and his testimony there. So, for example, uh, and there are several, but I gave you just one here. 1 Peter 2.7, remember he says, 
Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, right? Uh, when you get to, uh, to the book of Acts uh, chapter 4, and I'll just pull it up for us, Acts chapter 4 and uh, in verse 11, and in Acts chapter 4, we have uh, Peter and John before the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and, uh, and Peter begins to, to preach to them. And what does Peter preach in verse 11? He says, and then Peter quotes Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And so it's beautiful. You'll see in First Peter, oh, y'all remember, he, he did that in Jerusalem when he was in Acts. And so more internal evidence. Uh, some, uh, you might meet someone on the high street, for example, and you get into a conversation about one Peter, and you're in the co-op this afternoon, and someone says, hey, what was your church about today? And you say, we're, we're one Peter. And they say, I don't believe Peter wrote it. And you say, well, why not? And they say, because everyone knows that the Greek of one Peter is really good Greek, and Peter was a fisherman, and fishermen don't have good Greek, therefore I don't think Peter wrote it. This is all happening at the co-op, by the way, amen? And then you're going to say, well, you know what? The Greek in 1 Peter actually is really good Greek. And two things, let's don't insult fishermen because maybe they're more educated than we think they are. But secondly, Peter tells us in chapter 5 that the one who writes for him was Silas, 5 verse 12. And so we see that, that probably Peter is dictating uh, this letter and Silas is writing it down. Uh, do any of you have bad grammar or bad spelling and therefore get someone to help write your letters or things for you? No, right? And so that's exactly what happens here. Peter just says, hey, Silas, do you mind writing this down? And it's apparent Silas has really good Greek. Good for Silas, right? And so there's internal evidence. Uh, there's also um, external uh, evidence. Um, 100% the early church... Uh, accepted that Peter really wrote it. Uh, it was affirmed by the early church fathers like men, like Polycarp and Tertullian. These were like some of the early leaders in the church. It's also affirmed by the church reformers like Luther and Calvin. You say, why spend time telling you this? Because among liberal, uh, I'm going to use Christianity in quotes, there are a lot of liberal scholars who might say, well, Paul didn't really write Romans or Peter didn't write, write one Peter, and yet the evidence, both internally and externally, is uh, is pretty uh, pretty overwhelming. And and so then we want to ask the question: So who was he writing to? Right? So think about a letter. Who wrote the letter? Well, Peter wrote it. Well, a letter has a recipient. Who is he writing to? Uh, and he gives us again the answer in uh, in one Peter one to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's writing to persecuted Christians. He, these, these believers, these Gentile Christians, were scattered throughout what you and I now know as the country of Turkey. So think of the country of Turkey, if you can picture that in your mind. And that's where these Christians are. They're scattered. And so it's what we call a general epistle. So, for example, uh, Hebrews... James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1, 2, 3, John, Jude. These are what we call the general epistles. What we mean by that is these weren't written to one specific church. 
These were just written to the church, to Christians. And so they were what we call uh, circular letters, which means they were meant to be circulated, right? And so where, for example, Philippians was written to the church at Philippi just for them, this was just written to Christians. And so if we read it here this morning at Oikos, we would then would pass it on to the next church. They would pass it on to the next and to the next. Now, it would have been in people's homes. But this letter is being passed around to these Christians who encourage them in the midst of persecution. All right? Uh, when was it written? Uh, because that's important. Well, uh, it's, it's, it's a good guess. Somewhere between 62 and 65 A.D. The burning of Rome was in 64. So it's either written right before it or right after it. Most scholars would think, myself included, not I'm not a scholar, but I would think probably right after the burning of Rome, probably closer to 65, because obviously the persecution was there, but now it's really, it's really kicked off. So sometime between 62 and 65, definitely written during his reign. And then this is important. Do you remember in chapter 5 where he... Uh, who read that was Harriet? Did you read chapter 5, Harriet? Uh, he says, uh, he referred to Babylon, didn't he? Is that right? He says, um, Babylon sends its greetings, those here in Babylon. That was a code word that Christians would use for the city of Rome. They would refer to Rome as Babylon. If, if you look in the Old Testament, Babylon uh, was, was always represented evil. Babylon always represented wickedness. And so almost... Not a code word like they were secret agents, but almost just like slang, Christians just referred to Rome as Babylon, right? And so he's in Rome, and again, let's put all the pieces together. That means Peter and Paul are in Rome at the same time. Paul's in prison, Peter's not. So they're both in Rome, and they're both writing to believers, right? Paul's writing to churches, Peter is writing to believers. Peter tells us that Silas is with him, right? So Silas helped wrote it. And then he says, my son Mark. He's talking about Mark as in the gospel of Mark. Now, he's not his literal physical son. He means like his spiritual son. Kind of the way Paul talks about Timothy. Paul talks about Timothy as his son in the faith. Well, uh, Mark was Peter's um, uh, son in the faith. Very interesting. Again, we're, we're just putting pieces together. When you read the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark essentially is the story of Jesus from the point of view of Peter. And most scholars agree that Mark interviewed Peter, and that interview became the Gospel of Mark. I could nerd out on this stuff all day. It's so good. Like, it's so good, right? And so we see all the pieces coming together. Um, so what are we going to see? What, what does it say? Right? What does it say? Well, these are just some big ideas that we're going to see in the coming weeks. Some big ideas that we're going to see in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about the Christian life and suffering. We're going to talk about the Christian life and the gospel. We're going to talk about the Christian life and holiness. We're going to talk about the Christian life and relationships. And all of these are filtered through the lens of persecution, suffering. What does a marriage look like in the midst of persecution? What does citizenship look like when your government's trying to kill you? Uh, what does it look like? Why, why do I need to be so concerned with holiness 
in the midst of persecution? And what is the power of the gospel in the midst of persecution? And is it normal for Christians to suffer? And if so, how do we suffer in a way that honors Jesus? Uh, those are some of the things that we're going to talk about in, uh, in the coming months. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I believe God's going to speak to us. So uh, here's then my last question for us. Uh, why does one Peter matter today? Another way you might ask this is, who cares? Like, okay, but this was written like in 60, you know, 65 AD. This is 2000, we 2022. And I, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my job. I don't like school. Um, I'm struggling in my marriage. Um, uh, you know what? Like, I'm glad you think it's interesting, but what does it have? Why, why does it matter today, right? And, um, and that, is, that is always not just a legitimate question, but I think it's a key question. Why does this matter? What is the application? And uh, here uh, I'm going to give us three, um, three applications, uh, and they're going to come from Jesus. They're going to come from Jesus. Uh, we just celebrated Easter, and uh, prior to Sunday... Uh, we met and uh, and had a Passover meal, and we you know we think through communion and Passover and the Lord's Supper, and uh, it, so just tune your minds back to a week ago, and Jesus has gathered his disciples uh, in an upper room, and he's having the Passover meal with them, and as he has the Passover meal, a couple of things take place. He washes their feet. They have a meal like dinner. Then in the midst of having dinner, he does what we now think of as communion. And then they just talk. And, and the Gospel of John gives us the most of what they talk about. In fact, about four chapters of the Gospel of John are just Jesus talking at the Lord's Supper. And, and these are important things he's telling them. For Jesus knows these will be some of the very last words that he speaks to them. I've, I've shared with you often the story of me and Christy's dad and him calling us in one by one um, before having major surgery and potentially dying and, and wanting to have these last conversations with us. Jesus does that with his disciples in the Gospel of John at the Lord's Supper. And a lot of what he talks about, a lot of what he talks about is persecution, all right? So that's the context for what I'm now going to show you from the Gospel of John. And we're going to quickly see three reasons one Peter matters. I'm going to let Jesus answer that question, not me. Uh, Here's what Jesus says. As followers of Jesus, we are promised persecution. As followers of Jesus, we are promised persecution. Um, I've been in many a Christian bookstore where you see little books entitled like uh, Promises of the Bible, right? And they're beautiful. They have wonderful promises, but I've never bought one that had verses of persecution in it. That doesn't sell books, right? And yet Jesus promised persecution. And this is what he says, uh, and this is all at the Lord's table, John chapter 15, and the bold emphasis is mine. Look what Jesus says. This is Jesus speaking to you and I. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. 
But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. The world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Verses like this are found in all four Gospels. Jesus tells them this not just on that last night at the Passover meal. He tells them this at the Sermon on the Mount. It's over and over through his teaching. It is peppered preparing them that you will be persecuted. Now, don't miss what we just read in 1 Peter. He says, why do the people abuse you? Abuse is a form of hatred, is it not? He says, why do the people abuse you? Because you won't get drunk, and you won't be sexually promiscuous, and you won't go to the temple and worship idols. You won't do debaucherous things. You won't take, you know, 11- and 12-year-old boys and do these horrible things. You don't do that. And instead of getting rewarded, the world hates you because you will not do what it does. Are you with me? I mean, why would you kill a man who healed leprosy and healed children and who healed people who hated him and who cast out demons? Why would you kill someone who does that? In fact, to me, you gave him a key to the city. Why? Why? Because we are in the world, but not of it. Right? And and so, he says, we are promised persecution. The world will hate you. I guarantee more and more in Western Christianity, uh, when you say, I believe that marriage is defined in the Bible and marriage is between a man and a woman, the world will hate you and you will be abused. It's not coming. It's here. When, when we stand up and, and say various things, whether it's about marriage, whether it's about, do you know what? Um, I'm not sure if we should uh, ship people to Rwanda. Maybe we should do something different. Maybe the gospel says we, we do things differently. And I'm, I'm not trying to get political, but I'm just saying, the more we try to examine things through this book, we will not be cheered. We will be abused. How do I know it? Because Jesus promised it. And Jesus says... If they did it to me, are you silly enough to think they won't do it to you? Is that what he says? And so, the application, why do I want to know one Peter? Because you know what? I, again, I don't think the day is coming. I think it's here when to, to stand on this book is going to become harder and harder and harder. And, and, and we want to be prepared. We want to be prepared. And that leads us to uh, the second reason it's important. As followers of Jesus, we must prepare for persecution. As followers of Jesus, we're promised persecution, and therefore we must prepare for persecution. Prepare for persecution. Uh, Jesus says this, and it's the same, this is the same conversation, right? The same conversation. This follows what he just said. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Now that's interesting. Jesus says, I'm telling you about persecution so that when it comes, you won't give up. Does that make sense? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this so you won't fall away. Um, I, I will confess, I, do not, I don't mind getting a jab, but I totally dislike giving blood. Anyone here not enjoy giving blood? 
What are vampires? What in the world? Two people? So when so I have to go uh, every couple of months and, and, and have my blood checked. And, uh, and I'll always tell uh, the lady, she, she's so nice, Lorraine. She knows now, because it's been about two years, when I turn up and she's getting all the kit out, uh, I can't even look at it. And so I turn my chair, and then she'll, uh, she's so sweet. She's an older lady, and, uh, and she'll kind of rub my shoulder. And uh, she's like, all right, Mr. Dudnick, it's coming. She's like, I know, I've got a count for you. I'm like, do the count, Lorraine, do the count. She's like, one, two, it's coming. I'm like, I know it is, three, and then, you know, and, and then she tossed me through it, and then, then one day, I'm not joking, I was like, oh, I'm so glad it's over. All she had done is tie the little rubber thing on my arm. It wasn't over yet. Here's what Lorraine knows. And uh, Lorraine knows if she doesn't prepare me, I'll pass out. That's not an exaggeration. I was with my wonderful son, Max, once. He was about this tall. He was with me when I was given blood. And I'll never forget, Max asked the nurse, what would happen if you hit one of my dad's arteries? And the nurse said, oh, Max, your dad's blood would be everywhere. True story, Max? That's the last thing I remember. When I woke up, I was on a bed, Max was gone, and there were three nurses with orange juice and cookies, right? So here's the point. you got to prepare me. If you don't prepare me, I'm not going to do well. This is what Jesus is doing, guys. Look what he says. All this I've told you so that you will not fall away. I'm preparing you guys because living for me is not going to be easy. And I don't want you to be taken by surprise. Look what he says. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this, emphasis mine, so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. A lot of this is fulfilled in the book of Acts. Yet I think the principles carry on. Uh, Lastly, we see this, and this is why does 1 Peter matter well we're promised persecution we want to prepare for it but then this is what peter's going to tell us he says as followers of jesus we proclaim the gospel during persecution as followers of jesus we proclaim the gospel during persecution uh this is what jesus says same conversation uh and this is what he tells them when the advocate comes we know that's the holy spirit When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, watch this, he will testify about me, emphasis mine, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus says, when you're arrested, when you're brought before uh, the courts, the Holy Spirit is going to testify to me, and you also must testify about me. So, uh, an often quoted verse in 1 Peter, we just read it together, 1 Peter says, always be ready to give an account for the reason of the hope that's in you. Everybody remember that? Now, I think that principle is true when we're at the co-op, when we're at W.H. Smith, always be ready to, to share the hope of Jesus. But in its context, 1 Peter, he's telling them, when you're arrested, When you're in the Colosseum, when you stand before Nero, be ready to share about Be ready to give an account for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So how in the world do we do that? How do we do that? Here's the beautiful thing. 
in an odd way, we don't have to. Because Jesus says this in Mark 13, 11, And he says this multiple times in multiple Gospels. Jesus says, Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. That, that there's a teaching like that in, in, in all the Gospels. But Jesus says, when you're arrested, don't worry, don't be anxious, because the Holy Spirit will give you the very words to speak. Now, here, here's, here's the interesting thing. When he tells them this, for it is not you speaking with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. They wouldn't necessarily know what Jesus is talking about. Are you with me? The Holy Spirit doesn't come until Acts chapter 2. This is, this is, pre, this is you know, pre-Acts. And so he's saying the Holy Spirit is going to come. And they've, I, I would imagine they might be thinking, what is Jesus talking about? When you get to Acts chapter 2 and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he preaches uh, outside the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most famous sermon ever preached in human history. And I believe at that moment he realized, ah, that's what Jesus That's what Jesus We're filled with this power now. And, and, and all of a sudden I'm speaking and saying things I never knew I could speak. It's going to be power of Holy One Peter. One Peter. A book written to believers millennial ago, uh, who were proclaiming, loving Jesus, suffered for us. Uh, we are promised the same. Uh, and so you and I, uh, by God's providence, have this wonderful letter that has now circulated itself for centuries, and has now landed in Erdington. By reading this letter, we will find hope, we will find encouragement, we will find. Amen, church? Uh, here's, here's how we're going to close uh, this morning. Uh, we're just going to have some music on quietly. And just around your table, um, maybe you could just ask for a volunteer around your table. Just pray. Pray into this. However, however the Lord might, uh, might lead you. Uh, whenever the Dubniks, whenever we go on a trip, and I'm sure you do this as well, but whenever we're going on a trip in the car, we'll always pray before we before we pull out of the driveway. Hey, Lord, give us a safe trip. Help us know when to be sick. Help the car to do well. All those all those things. You know what? We're about to begin a journey. We're going on a journey through the book of One Peter. Maybe around your table, you just want to pray, Lord, as we start this journey, you just bless us. So. Uh, Ask a volunteer to do that at your table, and then uh, in just a moment, I'll close us. All right? Thank you.